was it bad? What was it like working with him, working with her? You'll hear all the tales you wish you knew. Every aspect of the theater too. Feel your love of Broadway anew. On backstage babble. Hi. This is Charles Kirsch, and welcome to Backstage Babble. Backstage Babble is a podcast interviewing professionals in the theater industry about themselves, their careers, and the people they've worked with along the way. It is a great honor for me to be able to introduce as legendary a guest as the one joining us today, book writer John Weidman. John Weidman has written such classic shows as Assassins, Pacific Overtures, Roadshow, Contact, Big, The Revised Book to Anything Goes, Diamonds, and Happiness. I hope you enjoy this episode. So, growing up, your father, Jerome Weidman, was a famous book writer himself. So, were you immersed in the theater world from a young age? Well, my dad was actually a, a novelist. Um, he published, uh, I think, some like 25 or 26 novels, also what I would include collections of short stories. He only worked in the theater briefly um, for, I guess, about five or six years. He was asked by Hal Prince and Bobby Griffith, at least this is my memory of it, to provide the book for the musical Fiorella. Um, and my dad had not, you know, he may have had plays in his drawer at that point, or even musicals, but he had never had anything produced. I think they they thought he was a good idea because he was such a sort of quintessential New Yorker and LaGuardia was such a also quintessential New Yorker. So um, his first experience in the theater, which that was the 59-60 season, was writing the book for Fiorello with Jerry Bach and Sheldon Harnick. And of course, it was a big success, won the Pulitzer Prize. Very exciting. Um, he, the same team then uh, wrote a musical called Tenderloin, the next season or the season after that, maybe musicals got done fast in those days. They weren't in development yeah. for 15 years. You could kind of do one every every two seasons. Um, and Tenderloin was uh, was sort of successful, but not like Fiorello. And then um, he did a musical with Harold Rome based on his, my dad's novel, I Can Get a Fuel Sale. It was also successful, but not enormously successful. Then he did another show after that that didn't work. And so he kind of gave up the theater and went back to just writing novels. So, But there was that period from about 1960 to, to I would say 67 when he was working on Broadway. And um, if you were me, when Fiorella was, was produced, um, I, I guess I was 13. And um, we had, I'd grown up in Southern Connecticut. That's where we lived. We moved into New York and to be dropped into this sort of the glamorous world of a great big Broadway hit yeah. was very, uh, was for a 13 year old kid was thrilling. Um, but it didn't, I did not emerge from observing his career in the theater with any ambition of my own to work in the theater. I had no ambition to be a writer. It's something that I sort of stumbled into later in life. I did very early on acquire um, a, a real attraction to the insides of theaters. I became an audience member you know, my parents took me occasionally when I was a little kid. And when we moved into New York, I would take myself all the time. You know, I can remember the the seat I was in when I saw Morris Evans in Heartbreak House or the seat I was in when I saw Zero Mostel and, and Forum. But it was not, uh, it may be something I acquired from my dad's DNA, but yeah. it was not, it was not a career ambition that I acquired from him directly. So at what point did you sort of get back into theater and writing? As okay, well, it's, uh, I'll give you the short version of this. I, I graduated from college in 1968. The war in Vietnam was raging. Um, I taught elementary school in New York for a period of time because that was a way you could get a, a deferment for military service. I then went to law school with a kind of a vague expectation that I would become an attorney or maybe go into politics. I thought I might go into the foreign service. And after uh, a year at law school at Yale, which was a great school, I loved being there, uh, but I had this sort of obligatory summer job as an attorney. And I thought, you know what? This is not what I want to do with the rest of my life. I don't want to be a lawyer. But I, was, I went back to law school 
and continued to learn how to be a lawyer, but I was trying to think of something else I could do. Um, and I'm not kidding. I was, I thought, well, the two things I really love, I love baseball and I love the theater. So I wrote a letter to the commissioner in baseball, said, I'm a law student. Do you have internships in your office? He said, I got a letter back saying no. And I then wrote a letter to Hal Prince, who had produced uh, the first two the show, the two first two shows that my dad had worked on. Um, you know, I was a little kid. I didn't know if he, I knew he'd remember me, but I, I asked him the same question about whether or not he had sort of internships for producers in his office. And he said, no, in the letter he sent back to me, but I appended a PS saying, I've got this idea for a play I might write um, about Commodore Perry's expedition to Japan, 1850, the opening of Japan. I'd love to talk to you about it if you ever had a free minute. And um, he got back in touch with me, as I said, it was like, yeah, I don't, there are no internships here, but the play idea sounds interesting. If you're ever in New York, why don't you come in and we'll talk about it? And so needless to say, I arranged to be in New York as quickly as I could. And he and I sat down and talked about the material. I mean, I, I to, to, to back up to my college days, um, I majored in East Asian studies. Uh, and so I had access to this body of information. Most people in the United States at that point just didn't know anything about it. Japan was a was a, 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 an idea on the other side of the world. So when I thought about something I might write about Japan, Japan's first collision with the United States came immediately to mind. And, you know, the notion that you could write a letter to Hal Prince and he'd say, Hey, that's a good idea. Why don't you write the plan? I'll read it. Yeah. Is ridiculous. I mean, on its face, it's ludicrous. Um, but at the time I thought, well, I got nothing to lose here. I can sit in Yale law school library and write a play and we'll see what happens. And what happened is eventually it, it, it evolved into, um, you know, Pacific overtures, which opened at the winter garden. So my entrance into a life in the theater was based on um, a lot of luck, a kind of an accident, and the fact that Hal Prince was throughout his career totally open to to young people who were starting out, um, beginning to figure out how they wanted to work in the theater. It was one of his great strengths, and I can't think of anybody else who would have even indicated uh, a willingness to read a play by somebody who had never written one before, but Hal was. And, um, you know, we stayed with the material. We stayed with the idea until we, until Steve got added to the project and there it was. So how did Stephen Sondheim sort of come into it and meet you and start well, collaborating? Sort of, sort of is a good phrase to use. I mean, Hal, so I wrote a straight play called Pacific Overtures about Perry's expedition to Japan and Hal decided he would produce it. And we had a reading in New York and um, I was coming in from New Haven for casting sessions. You can find actors to put my, put on my first play on Broadway. And at a certain point, Hal called me and he said that Boris Aronson, who was his designer, brilliant designer, Boris designed Fiddler, Boris designed Follies, Boris designed all house shows. And he said, Boris couldn't figure out how to design the play. And that was like an alarm bell for Hal. It meant, you know what? Maybe oh. this play is not going to work. And he said, I think what it wants to be instead is a musical. And what I thought I was, despite what he was saying, what I was hearing was him saying, I'm not going to do your play. Yeah. But he got in touch, you know, he, he sent the material to Steve and he and Steve talked. Steve was not initially enthusiastic. Hal's right could be hugely persuasive. And eventually, you know, um, Steve and Hal and I had a first meeting in Hal's office and then the three of us were off to the races. So at that point, Stephen Sondheim and Hal Prince were both veterans in the theater and this was your first musical. So what was that sort of like to be starting out working with them? Yeah, it was, um, it was, it was both thrilling and terrifying, I would say. I mean, I had been a huge fan of theirs sort of right up until the day I actually started to work with them. I mean, you know, I thought Follies and Company were brilliant. I thought Night Music was brilliant. And uh, the next show turned out was Pacific Overtures, which I was going to write. Um, it's, I, I'll say this by both of them. I mean, they, they um, both enormously generous, open-hearted artists. 
so that I never had any sense from the very beginning in working with them that I was a sort of a, a junior member of the team. Um, yeah. You know, um, despite Hal's stature and Steve's stature, it's like we each had a, a job to do. We were all going to collaborate and, you know, and, and that's the way we, we pretty much moved forward. But it was, I have to tell you, you know, as I said, uh, sitting down in a room with the two of them as well as an equal artist creator yeah. was not unintimidating. So I want to ask you a little bit about your partnership with Stephen Sondheim. So about your sort of writing process. So do you often write the book first and then he'll sort of put in the songs or do you sometimes hear his songs and then? Well, you know, the days when, um, when uh, somebody would go away and write up a book from musical and then turn it over to the composer or the composer lyricist. Those days are pretty much long gone. Mm -hmm. And, um, uh, you know, each of the three shows I did with Steve involved an enormous amount of collaborating before anybody wrote anything really. Um, but each of the three shows, uh, Pacific Overtures and Assassins and Roadshow evolved differently. I mean, you know, I've told you sort of how Pacific Overtures got started. Um, so that Hal was always kind of the hub of the creative wheel. Um, I would meet with Hal, I would, Steve would meet with Hal, the three of us would all meet together. But um, the scenes and the, and the structure kind of evolved out of those conversations. Then I would go away and write and Steve would go away and write. And, and we would sort of, you know, keep pace with each other as we went forward. With assassins, um, Steve and I basically started to have conversations about the material. Uh, there was nobody else in the room, nobody else involved, and we talked the material. We talked about the material for weeks and weeks. I would say months until we arrived at a point where we both felt like we could go away and write the same show. Yeah. And at that point, I went away and wrote a first draft of the book. And Steve went to work on an opening number. But, you know, we had already at that point talked about what was probably going to become a song, what was probably going to remain a scene. And I have to say that's sort of the same process that he and I engaged in on Roadshow. It's just that Roadshow went through so many different um, stages in its development that it, you know, it, it evolved differently. With Assassins, when Steve and I finished writing really nobody else had touched the material until we were done and then we started to talk to other people about who might uh, want to who might want to direct it who'd be the right person to to add to the team but th that's steve and i have always and i think most people at this point work that way where you just i, th I would say the goal is to is to is to talk and talk and talk until as i said everybody's confident that they're going to, when they go and do their particular part, that they're going away, they're going to go away and write exactly the same show. Yeah. So that um, uh, you don't wind up with a score that's an uncomfortable fit with a book, which is an uncomfortable fit with a score. Um, it should all feel as though it's come out of one pen by the time anybody actually starts writing, ideally. So do you two ever sort of cross over into each other's fields? Meaning, do you ever help with the lyrics and music and does he help with the book? Well, you know, I, 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 I have never helped with the lyrics. I certainly couldn't help with the music. I, you know, I'm, I'm musically, I'm illiterate. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, I have a two-year-old granddaughter who occasionally bangs the piano and she comes closer to a melody than I do, even if I'm trying. But um, when you have the kind of conversations that I'm, I'm talking about, um, the content of a scene becomes a subject for conversation between me and Steve. And the content of a lyric can also become the subject of, con of a conversation between me and Steve. Steve will then go away and come back with the song that, you know, typically has in it all the ideas that he and I have discussed, but with all the other extraordinary stuff, which, because he is a genius, he, um, he pours over it. But I mean, there are there. I mean, for example, um, the um, we knew there was going to be a scene in the middle of Assassins, in which each of the each of the assassins, you know, having been gathered together as a bunch of strangers who don't know each other at the top of the show, 
each of them would make an attempt on a president's life. They'd bump up against each other. Then they would come back together and look at each other and go, oh, you know what? I'm not a, 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 a total loner. I'm a little like you. You're a little like me. And that mm -hmm. that would evolve into, that would be a number. We knew it was going to, I mean, I, however, whether I wrote a, a scene to support the song or not, we knew ultimately it was going to be a song. And um, after we'd finished a kind of a first draft, I'd finished the first draft of the book, Steve was working on the song and he called me and he said he was having trouble getting, getting, so I couldn't, he was having trouble finding his way into the song. And he asked me if there was anything which I had cut from the long scene in the school book depository in Dallas. I'd already, I had a draft of that finished. Was there anything I'd cut that might be helpful to him or useful? And I said, I didn't think so, but I would check. And so I went back and looked at my earlier drafts of the scene and I found a page that I had cut in which the assassins uh, described themselves to Lee Harvey Oswald as the other national anthem, the one, the one they don't play at the ballpark. And there's a, a couple of lines of dialogue. And um, I thought, well, that's pretty good. I, I couldn't remember why I had cut it. I think it, it sort of duplicated something else I had done. But I, I sent it to Steve and I said, I don't know if this is helpful, but maybe. But maybe. And in fact, the song which he eventually wrote is called Another National Anthem. So that it was pulled from uh, a line of dialogue which I had cut from the script. That kind of back and forth, uh, you know, between a, a composer and a lyricist uh, and a book writer ideally goes on all the time uh, so that everybody's hopefully sort of a little bit inside each other's heads as the writing goes forward. So I want to ask you, when you were writing Pacific Overtures, writing in the kabuki style with knowing that men would be playing women and all those sort of conventions. Was that something that was easy for you to write or was it more of a challenge? Well, you know, it's, first of all, you have to remember um, uh, the straight play version of Pacific Overtures was the first thing I'd written. Yeah. I didn't have a lot of previous work to compare it to in terms of it being more or less difficult. But when, when, we, when it became time to actually reimagine the play drastically, dramatically, as a musical, I did have to invent a language for the characters, which would hopefully feel to an audience as if it was not any kind of colloquial familiar English that had a formality to it, which would allow the audience to hear it as something foreign, um, uh, not specifically necessarily Japanese, but because the characters who would be using the syntax would be Japanese characters played by Asian American actors, they, it would read that way. I think that, so was it tricky? It's like once I figured out what I thought the style and the form of the language should be, this kind of sort of slightly, this formal, um, this sort of formal restructured kind of English, then, you know, I, I, I sort of, fell into the the pattern of being having access to that and using it as I wrote going forward. But I think you know one of the things that's true of of um, book of writing books for musicals generally um, is that all book writers, I think, even if they're writing a musical like rent, you know, contemporary musical set on the Lower East Side, you have to create a language which is in some way artificial so that it feels comfortable when people who are using that language then transition from that language into song. So that a good scene in a musical will feel like me and you talking now, but it won't be. The language will have been constructed in a way which mm -hmm. makes it useful in a musical, but which would make it stand out like a sore thumb if it was in a play. You know, I've often said to people, if you if you take the best scene from a good musical, a really good musical, and drop it into a straight play, people are going to go, well, why are they suddenly talking like that? And conversely, if you take a, a, a great scene from a great play and drop it into a musical, it's also going to feel like it's out of place. So how was it to be working in rehearsal with a lot of Japanese actors who had never done a Broadway show before? 
Well, some of them, some of them, some had. Some had. It, um, you know, we cast the show both in New York and also in Los Angeles. And, you know, it's a, it's a sad fact of, you know, where the theater was at then, and it still is to a very, very large extent. But there were very few parts um, available on stage for Asian American actors. Yeah. And um, I, I think most of the most of the people we wound up with had been making a living on the West Coast uh, in television and in the movies. Not entirely, um, uh, but uh, you know they they listen. They were a very professional, very savvy group, you know, and and they'd been making their living uh, either on screen and in some cases on stage for a long time. Um, but but they were they were a great group to work with, and um, uh, you know particularly uh, Mako who who played the reciter, who played the lead, who was the head of the, sort of the de facto head of the company. Mako was an extraordinarily impressive person, hugely talented. Um, I couldn't sing at all. I mean he you know he was perfect for the part. And one of Steve's great gifts is to is is to write to the the ability of the actor who's going to create the role. And yeah. so, you know, Mako, there was no way Mako was going to sing anything complicated, but Steve, he's all over the score and Steve, Steve found, finds a way to make that actor work in that, in that part. But um, Goat had a, was an important actor on the West Coast. He'd been nominated for a, an Oscar, I think in a movie called Sand Pebbles, um, just a couple of years before. Um, so there were, I, you know, I, I stayed in touch with with many of them for a long time afterwards, and occasionally, I mean, you know, there was an actor named Alvin Alvin Ng, um, who who came back to Pacific Overtures when it was done at the Roundabout in two thousand and five or six, I guess, after having been in the original Broadway company. And um, I'm trying to think if there was anybody else in the Broadway company who who appeared in that production. I don't think so. But um, yeah, they were a great group. So you worked on downsizing the book for the of the show for the recent CSC production, which was very successful. Yeah. So how did you sort of approach redoing? Well, you know, it. Um, uh, John Doyle, it was John's theater and John was going to direct it. And John is a minimalist. He's really approaches things. He's happiest doing things when they are sort of boiled down to their to their essence. And one of the things which had been true of the show when we first wrote it was that Steve and I had been executing what was fundamentally an idea of house, but what seemed like a very smart idea, which was to kind of decorate the central story, which was the story of these two men, one a peasant who had been shipwrecked, been to America and come back, a fisherman, and the other a, a samurai um, to to surround their central story with scenes which would have a kind of a scrapbook quality, uh, a snapshot of something that happened in Japan when the Americans delivered their gifts to the Japanese, and something that happened when um, you know um, a madam with her girls came down to the to the beach to sort of wave at the Americans on the ship. And there was a there were a bunch of scenes, particularly not so much songs, but scenes like that in the show. And in the end, it it felt uh, to me, certainly, and, and uh, less less so to Steve, but but we certainly agreed on it. They were a kind of a distraction and they pulled the audience away from the from their connection to these two main characters. And so one of the things that um, uh, we did down a classic stage with John was to sort of some of these scenes had already been removed, but was to kind of take out the rest of them and then to to do a certain amount of just thinning and trimming um, uh, in order to, as I said, to to keep the focus on these on these two men. And there were some things that, you know, we had been um, I had been I thought. Um, careless about in the first production there were there were certain there were a couple of uh, you know um, lines for the reciter which i had described as haiku but they weren't haiku they observed the the the, the rules of how many syllables go in the first line the second line but otherwise they had nothing to do with the nature imagery of 
of haiku. And so I wanted to remove those. Um, and I did. And, you know, I guess the, the, and of course, the other big change down at the classic stage was that we took out Chrysanthemum Tea, a, a brilliant song, which people love. But the idea behind removing it and removing this other stuff, a lot of the other stuff as well, was that you know, in a sense, the, the fundamental idea of the piece, the animating idea was that this culture in Japan had been closed to outside influences for 250 years. Yeah. And so for better or for worse, it had a kind of purity um, and that that purity was going to be disturbed and then blown open by the arrival of the Americans. And um, Chrysanthemum Tea is a, is a really funny song. But it's, as I said to somebody, you know, when we were talking about whether to cut it or not, I said, basically, you know, it's a song about the, the shogun's being poisoned by his mother because he's a nitwit and she feels like they'll all be better off if she can get him out of the way. And the song, even though it, you know, the, the characters are Japanese and, and they're referring to Japanese things, it kind of has the tone of a, of a, of a Jewish mother comedy number from a musical comedy. And yeah. so subliminally, without anybody thinking about it, I, I felt as though it already disturbed the idea that we were inside this very pure culture. And that's a, if you sang that song and then tried to come back um, to the two men and to a song like Poems, you'd already kind of really kind of upset this culture, which we were going to watch being gradually upset, particularly in, in what was formerly the second act. So that's that's what we did downtown. And it was it was it was not an attempt to make a a better show. It was an attempt in it at, at a kind of an experiment to see what would happen if we took the show, which I love, but sort of twisted it slightly this way, pulled this out of it, and what would the what would the result be? And I was very happy with it. I, I thought that um, it was a terrific cast and um, John Doyle did a, a kind of a, a a brilliant job and so it was I felt very lucky to have that opportunity yeah. to really to conduct this kind of experiment. So your next show on Broadway was also a book that you revised which was Anything Goes. Yes. So what were some of the sort of big changes that you made to that? Well you know Anything Goes was was interesting because it um, it had been produced on Broadway in 1934 but there had never been after 1934, a first-class revival of the show. And um, it's not because the score was in any way deficient. The collection of songs in that show are sort of breathtaking. I mean, it's like Cole Porter's greatest hits. And, um, but the problem was the book, the book was very much a, a creature of its, of its time, of the 1930s, when books didn't have to add up to much more than just a skeleton of a plot with some good gags along the way yeah, and, and, a, and a little bit of a gesture in the direction of, of a romance. Um, and, you know, that was fine in 1934, but as time passed, audiences um, expected more from the book than that. I don't mean they came in saying, I want the book to be good and not feel like 1934, but there, the audience yeah. had a, an expectation of what an experience in the theater would be like. And, um, you know, my partner in that, Tim Krauss, was actually, the in doing the rewrite, Tim was the son of Russell Krauss, who was half of the team of uh, Lindsay and Krauss, who were yeah. four of the original book writers of the 1934 show. And, uh, you know, uh, Tim's dad and, and Howard Lindsay, his partner, had been, were enormously successful and celebrated. They wrote Life of Father. They wrote the book for Sound of Music. But anything goes was for various reasons, which I won't go into now. The book had been thrown together really fast, kind of at the last minute in 1934. So it was ripe for to be worked on again. Um, but we felt, and I think we were largely successful, we felt that the way to approach the task was to try to produce what would feel like a show that had been written in 1934 but which now operated and was paced in a way in which would satisfy what audiences expected from a musical now. So that we reduced the book as much as we could. Uh, we rewrote large parts of it, um, most of it, I suppose. 
Um, we took songs which could be repurposed and used as actual book songs, more or less, which had just been kind of decorative songs previously. Um, so we rearranged the score um, and we took a song like You're the Top, which had originally just been song, sung as a kind of a two people bump it. Reno and Billy bump into each other on the deck. It's great to see you. It's great to see you too. You know why? Because you're the top. And then they would sing. And instead, you know, we picked a moment where Billy has stowed away and he's really second guessing his decision. And he doesn't think he's possibly going to win the girl because she's an aristocrat and he's kind of a loser from the Lower East Side. And Reno uses the song as a way to, to buck him up and to boost his self-confidence. And then it just opens up into the, this great Porter number. But so we tried, and I think largely succeeded in doing that. Um, and I could, there are other examples I could point to if you're curious. Um, but so it was, it was, it was a kind of a, a restoration project. We also found there were a lot of songs which had been cut over the years from the 1934 score, um, which we restored. Um, so that the, the, the score that, that was sung at the Vivian Beaumont 1988, if that's, if I've got the year right, was much closer to the 1934 score than, other, you know, shows that had been done in high schools in the previous mm. 20 years. So we wound up with something that, that, that we were very proud of. And I have to say, you know, that, that one of the driving forces behind that production other than Tim's mom, who really wanted to see the show, a first-class production of the show again on stage, and she did. She loved it. But Greg Mosher, who was had just taken over as the artistic director at Lincoln Center Theater, Lincoln Center Theater, which had been dark for years, was considered a place where you couldn't produce a show, and is now the place where everybody wants their shows produced. Greg felt that, and I think correctly, that um, Cole Porter um, had been a theater artist, all these songs that we were familiar with had been written for shows. They were scores. Um, and because the shows weren't particularly worthy of a full production, the songs had all, had all drifted into nightclubs and become parts of cabaret acts. And Greg wanted to put Cole Porter back on stage. And, um, and, and we did that at the end of the curtain call at the Beaumont 1988 after Patti LuPone took a, a bow and Howard McGillan took a bow. Um, uh, Jerry Zaks, who's the director, did an amazing job. Jerry flew in a huge picture of Cole Porter. Oh. So that Cole Porter got essentially got the last round of applause. Um, and we put him on stage. And that was very satisfying. So is writing a show for a specific period like the 1930s for this one, is that something you enjoy doing? Well, yeah, I think, you know, if you think about um, musicals generally, most of them um, are set in another time and another place or another time, you know, um, it's, I think one of the reasons is that it's easier for audiences to accept the convention of people bursting in a song if they're doing it in France in the 18th century. Yeah. Or, uh, than they would if they were doing it, you know, in a in a in an apartment on Columbus Avenue in 2015. Uh, I don't mean I don't mean to single out Columbus Avenue. It's just the one that came to mind. Uh, there are there certainly are contemporary musicals um, that are are really good and really successful. But if you start to make a list, you know, um, um, the Fiddlers and the Oklahomas and the South Pacifics, even though South Pacific was a contemporary piece it was still set someplace else so you usually wind up working with some sense of other people in another place not always but but typically so that writing for characters americans in the 1930s was not it's not like writing for uh, japanese you know in 1853 yeah. but it but a little bit you know it's a little bit the same and and the same is true of you know the, the characters in assassins, the ones who came from a different time period. Um, and so the Meisner brothers, you know, um, Roadshow takes those guys around the turn of the century up to the early 1920s. So it's, it's, it's something that a book writer is usually doing, or certainly doing more often than not, I would say. 
So you were mentioning earlier that your two greatest loves, I guess, are theater and baseball. So you got to combine those in writing for Diamonds. So how did you sort of get approached to do that? Charles, I got to tell you, I, I, of all the shows that I, that I thought you would want to talk about, <laughs> Diamonds is, was at the bottom of my list. Not because I didn't, I didn't like working on it, but because it's, it has been largely forgotten. It didn't run alone. Um, well, it was, you know, it was, I believe the notion for the show was Hal Prince. And Hal is certainly the person who approached me and said, would you like to contribute material to this show? And it was meant to be a review. It was always meant to be a review. And um, I mean, in fact, it was, I can't remember what theater, it was an off-Broadway house. I can't remember which one, but there were so many authors that, so many different authors that they could not all be invited to the opening night. <laughs> so, because I mean, I mean, there must have been 30 people contributing material to the show. So um, it, it didn't actually feel like working on a baseball show in particular because i would just I, I dropped in i got three or four different scenes or bits i can't even remember at this point i can't quite remember what my contribution was but there were good things in the show the um the best thing was what i think is one of the best songs ever written for the theater and that's um uh, a cray carnelia song called something like a dream which is just exquisite um, but there were there were other good things in the show. It it was not a success. I don't remember how long it ran. I do remember that this was like a, a lesson learned before all concerned. But the opening night party, um, you know, the authors had not all been at the theater. The party afterwards was on one of those boats that goes out and and floats around New York oh, Harbor. Yeah. Right. So everybody turned up and we all got on the boat. And the boat went out to, you know. Uh, sail around the harbor following whatever route it intended to follow. And uh, people started to, to get the reviews. The reviews were like being coming into the, to the ship from someplace and they weren't good. And if you're at an open-eyed party and the reviews are not good, you can go home. But if you're on a boat in the middle of New York Harbor, you just got to wait <laughs> until, until the ship docks and then you can go home. But I, it was a very strange night. So the next show you did was Assassins again with Stephen Sondheim. So yes. was this time, was this your idea again, or was it his idea to make? Well, you know what? It's, it, um, it was, it was Steve's idea, but it was, it was, I'll, I'll, I'll give you the kind of the short version. I had anything goes had opened uh, at the Beaumont and it was a hit. And I thought, um, all right, um, I've got, the show's going to run for a couple of years. I want to go back to work on something right away. And Steve and I had remained and become very good friends. And I had an idea for a show I wanted to write about the Paris Peace Conference of 1919. First World War is over. Everybody's getting together, going to make the world safe for democracy. And uh, everybody got together and basically made decisions which were the beginning of the end of the world. I mean, it was a very a fascinating few months. And so I went to Steve and we talked about it. And he said, nah, I don't know. He said, it sounds like maybe it's a movie or maybe. So what do you think about this? Assassins. And I said, uh, say some more. And Steve had, had been one of the judges of a musical theater competition uh, a few years before. Um, and one of the submissions that he had read was um, a play by a musical by a really talented guy named Charlie Gilbert. And he had written a piece about somebody, a Vietnam vet, comes back to the States, he's disillusioned, he begins em em embroiled in this plot to assassinate the president, but appearing, decorating Charlie's script were occasional appearances by actual assassins from history. John Wilkes Booth would pop in and say something, and Leon Cholgosh would pop in and say something. And Steve had been fascinated by these characters. And um, so he just wanted to kind of talk about them. And so we sat around for a while uh, just to talk about these different personalities, all of whom, you know, at least in, they have nothing to do with each other. Each of them had articulated a very specific reason for why they did what they did, none of which overlapped. But we sort of wondered if we talked about them, if some idea might emerge that we would write about, which kind of explained this phenomenon, which particularly at the time had become 
familiar in the United States. Uh, assassinations were taking place frequently. And um, uh, I realized as, as Steve and I talked that, um, uh, you know, I was in high school when, when JFK was assassinated. And the, his assassination had never really made much sense to me. I don't mean that I didn't believe in the Warren Commission, I didn't believe Oswald had done it, but if you're a kid and something that really painful and upsetting happens, and it was, I found it enormously painful and upsetting. It was my first real experience of loss. It seemed to me that beyond trying to figure out if there were Cubans involved or if the FBI was involved or if Castro, I mean, if Castro was Cuban, but if there was some conspiracy theory that would explain the assassination, if there wasn't some other idea about what we say to each other about what it means to be an American, what, what we're entitled to as a result of being Americans, if there wasn't something to explore that would that could emerge from putting all these characters together in one place. And and so the more Steve and I talked, the more it became clear that, that that's what we were going to write about. And of course, that's why the show winds up in the Texas School Book Depository with everybody trying to persuade Oswald to kill Kennedy and join the group. But that's, that's where the idea grew out of Steve just tossing that one word out into the <laughs> onto the coffee table, and then then everything else happened from there. So unlike in I guess most shows, there's no protagonist or hero in that show. So did that make it challenging to write? It it um, form sometimes does follow content. It um, we never thought about. Um, what, what am I trying to say? I think the, the shape of the show and the form of the show evolved uh, as Steve and I talked about the ideas that would actually animate the writing itself. Um, the one of the earliest ideas was that we would we would confine the show to the sort of dark claustrophobic world in which these characters existed. Uh, we weren't going to have a hero, right? Um, there wasn't going to be somebody who who at the last minute appeared and, and foiled an assassination attempt. So once that decision was made, yeah, we, we, we were not going to have anything that resembled um, a conventional protagonist, but we did know that in order to achieve what we wanted to achieve in terms of the content of the piece, we needed to bring these people all together as individual, separate individuals at the beginning, kind of trap them with each other so that they would kind of provoke each other and prod each other and interact with each other, then have them come to a, real, a realization about the fact that they actually were or could see themselves as a group and then send them off to Texas to enlist a new member. Is there somebody to admire in that? No. Um, and it would be, it would be, um, it would have been, it would have undermined the whole idea of the piece to try and create anything resembling a conventional protagonist. And I think it's one of the reasons why people had so much trouble with the show when it was first produced. Um, uh, people now, you know, have, have gotten used to the show and it's done really well. And, and, and you know, it, it usually is extremely well reviewed, but it, it, everybody understands now what our intention was, which is, which is um, a pleasure because they didn't initially, it took a while for the world to kind of catch up with what we were doing. But it is, in that sense, it wasn't that it made it, the absence of a protagonist didn't make the writing more difficult. It did mean that we were making a different choice, which was going to drive the way we, we then proceeded with the writing. So how did you come up with the idea to have the balladeer or a narrator figure, sort of? Well, well you know, um, it's a while ago, so I have to, I want to be careful. I'm not too definitive, but it, um, Steve felt, um, in conversations quite early on that one of the ways that um, Americans become sort of folk heroes or develop a kind of a mythic quality, which, which then sort of surrounds the way we view them as Americans, uh, was through the, through the creation of, of songs about them, like the Ballad of Davy Crockett or the Ballad of John Henry. Um, and that to apply that form to these characters who did these terrible things um, would be a smart way to, <laughs> to 
to fold these characters into a more mainstream idea of American history, that they weren't simply aliens who existed outside the American experience, but it would be more helpful to look at them as part of our experience. And so to give them access to our, our musical history was one of the ways to do that. It also meant that um, despite the speech I just made about there not being a protagonist, and there isn't, it, it gave us an opportunity to create one character who could exist outside their dark world, yeah. comment on it, push against it, and then be pushed out of the way once that world decided to take over the stage. So he's he was a very useful character and was, I think from our earliest conversations, he emerged as somebody who was gonna be a, an important part of the show. So you did it first off Broadway in 1990 and then it came to Broadway in 2004. So right. were there a lot of changes made during that period? There were, um, I, wa I wanna be careful, I'm not too absolute, but the show that Joe Mantello directed uh, at the roundabout on Broadway was exactly the same as the show that Jerry Sachs directed off-Broadway. And Jerry's production was really good. It was beautifully cast and beautifully directed. But as I said, I think the world sort of caught up with the show. But we did not rewrite anything. Um, oh. there was, the show was done um, in London the year after it was done at Playwrights Horizon, the, that which was the first off-Broadway production. And for that production, Steve wrote a song called Something Just Broke, which was added to the show in London and which has remained in the show ever since and we felt it added a dimension to the show particularly towards the end that would be helpful in terms of, of, of how what the audience felt about what their experience had been as they left the theater but you know something just broke had been in the show since 1991 and the show that uh joe had some really smart ideas about uh, that didn't involve rewriting, um, but that did involve, you know, giving the proprietor character a certain part of a certain song in order to give him a clearer line through the show. And he did have, he did make one suggestion about the first book scene after the Ballad of Booth, um, which uh, I thought was really smart. And so I, I, I added the women who had not been part of that scene to that scene and gave him sort of four lines of dialogue. Um, but that was pretty much it. Otherwise, we, we, we never felt that the show needed to be fixed. Yeah. We, were, we were satisfied with what we had written. And as I said, I like to think that the world sort of caught up with it. So the next two shows you did on Broadway were with Susan Stroman in collaboration with her. Yes. So how did you sort of meet her and begin to collaborate? Well, I met Stroh because she was the choreographer on Big and, um, you know, uh, Rich Mulvey and David Shire were people I, who were friends and I admired their work enormously. And so, you know, we all went to work and then uh, Stroh and her husband, Mike Ockrand, came in as the producer, I'm sorry, as the director and the choreographer. And Stroh, Mike and I just got to be really good friends and, um, you know, remained friends uh, after we finished working on Big. And so, you know, one day, I guess 1998 or something, um, Stroh called me and said she had gotten a call from Andre Bishop at Lincoln Center. And that Andre, who was a fan of her work, said, look, if there's if there's ever anything you want to just play around with to work on, um, you can have one of my rehearsal rooms and I'll give you a budget for dancers. And um, Stroh called me and said she'd just gotten this call and did I want to come over and talk about something we might do together? And I said, yeah. Absolutely. And so, you know, I went over and we sat around her living room and she had had this experience of going to a, an after hours club downtown where she saw a, a, a woman in a yellow dress who behaved in a particular way, which fascinated her. And so we started to talk about that character and everything else just grew out of that first conversation. But Stroh's, I mean, I've worked with Stroh two or three times. We're really good friends and she's She's a great collaborator and she's just a pleasure to work with. So I want to ask you about doing big. So when you're writing a script that's based on a script of a famous movie, how do you manage to sort of pay tribute to that without copying it? Sort of? um, you know, it's tricky. Um, I think one of the things that was 
that was problematic about Big when we did it was that the film was um, not very old at that point, maybe 10 years old, yeah. maybe that, and had a, and obviously a star performance in it, it was Tom Hanks. Um, and, and, and maybe mostly, the movie's just really good. Um, yeah. uh, you know, it, there wasn't anything about the film that I thought uh, it wasn't delivered uh, fully and in a satisfying way by the film. So the question then become, became, why, why do it again in a different form? And I wasn't sure it was a good idea, but David and Richard wrote uh, one song as a kind of an experiment as part of this conversation. And it was just a great song and it had enormous emotional content. And I thought, okay, let's dive in and see if we can tell this story again on, on stage. But you really, movies have their own dynamic, which, you know, has almost nothing to do, well, could have something to do, but very little to do with the dynamic that would drive a musical theater piece. So you have to sort of inhale the whole thing and then exhale it in a different form. Yeah. So I also want to ask you about writing that show. How did you manage to sort of balance writing a musical for kids with also something that would be interesting to adults? Well, you know, it's, that's an interesting question because Big, in fact, um, and, and I, I'll t I have a story to tell about this. But, I mean, Big is a movie for adults. I mean, it's not a kid's movie by any means. It's, it is not, it, it is, it is not a, an animated Disney feature. Mm -hmm. um, uh, the fact that it's about a kid who decides to become a grown-up can make it seem like it's about kids, but it's a very adult story. And um, when my, I can't remember how old my daughter was, but she doesn't go to the movies. But um, my wife and I took her to see the film. Um, and it was sort of the first grown-up movie that we had taken her to see. And she was, she was devastated at the end because the film does not have a kind of a, a Disney happy ending. On the contrary, it's a very bittersweet moment when um, Josh goes back to being a kid and this woman who's fallen in love with him has to drive off and figure out what she's going to do with the rest of her life. So that, you know, the hope was always that the show would find a large family audience, but that in the end, it, it you know, it, it, it's, it was aimed at um, people who were going to pay the money to buy the tickets. And yeah. there are very few shows that I think, um, including, you know, the, the, the good Disney musicals that are kids shows they're, they're, you know, the theater is, is a, or at least a Broadway theater is, is an experience for grownups and it can embrace kids as well. But, um, you know, I can't think of a, anything that I would describe as a kid's musical on Broadway. Yeah. So you were mentioning Contact, which was your next show with Susan Stroman. So I want to ask you, what does it sort of mean to write the book for a show that's entirely dance? Well, it was, you know, it's interesting. The, the, the show was, Stroh and I would frequently would describe the show as a show which had been written in dialogue and dance. Um, nobody sings, it does not have an original score, but um, there is not, a, not an insubstantial amount of talking on stage. In fact, it's probably more dialogue than in a number of sung through musicals. But because the characters, when they aren't talking, aren't singing, but simply dancing, it feels like um, there's less language maybe than there is. But the, there's no question that the primary vocabulary for storytelling in that show is the choreography. And, you know, Stroh's choreography is brilliant and the story lives inside those dances. And, um, but, but each of the three pieces that add up to the show are story driven and so have the kind of structure that a, a book musical requires. Um, you know, in the, in the original credits for the piece, choreography, the choreographic credit for Stroh went up at the top in the slot where composer or lyricist would ordinarily have the credit mm -hmm. because there is authorship, that choreography is authorship. It's not simply choreography. So it was a really, really interesting process for the two of us to, to work on that together, really satisfying. And I think we were both, you know, really satisfied with the, with where it came out. So is dancing something that you have an instinct for or a knowledge of yourself as well? I, um, I had to dance at my daughter's wedding. 
because that's what you do. And I, yeah. I wanted to, but um, I can't dance at all. So oh. I actually asked Scro if she could choreograph something for me that I could do with my daughter. Not anything fancy. I didn't want to look, I just didn't want to fall on my face. And so she did. She sort of, she put together some very basic steps and, and that's what I did. I danced with my daughter at the wedding. So no, much like Michael Wiley, the character in the third piece of the show, um, he can't dance, uh, but he learns to. I uh, can't dance and I have never figured out how. And I'm, I'm running out of time. So what do you think it is about contact that made it have such a long run and such an appeal? I think it was, I think it was, um, I think it, it was an authentically optimistic show. Um, you know, it's, it is three stories. The, the first piece, the shortest piece is about people who are in contact with each other in a way that they find completely satisfying, but the contact is extremely thin. It has no real emotional content. And the second piece um, is about a woman who is who is desperate to make contact with somebody, but she can't. And so the, the second piece ends with that character sort of in despair. The third piece begins with this Michael Wiley character in a despairing place, not knowing why, but discovering over the course of the next hour that it's because he has, he's never really been able to achieve contact with another person. And when he does, um, I think the audience found it enormously satisfying. And as I said, it, you know, you could call it a happy ending, but that feels like a, a, a slightly cheesy label. I think, yeah. I think the, the affirmative outcome, the optimistic outcome is something that we earned, uh, that the show earned. And so I think it felt very real to people. And I think that's why it felt so satisfying. So I want to ask you about Roadshow or Bounce, Wise Guys and Gold. So how did you or Santan come up with the subject matter for that? Well, Steve, uh, first of all, there, this idea, there's this idea live in the land that the show was called Gold at some point. I don't think it ever was, but it certainly had the other oh. three titles. Um, uh, Steve had, had, Steve called me up one day. And um, he asked me if I'd ever heard of a guy named Wilson Meisner. And I said, I had not. And um, he said, well, there's a book about him. Uh, do you want to read it? I said, sure. So um, uh, I read this book called The Fabulous Meisners, I think, which is basically about this guy, Wilson, and his brother, Addison. And they had been born in the Bay Area, I, I guess, about, you know, in the 1870s and died within about 20 minutes of each other in the uh, in the 1920s, maybe the early 30s. I can't remember exactly. But um, they had this very complicated relationship. And um, um, Wilson, you know, interested Steve initially because he thought Wilson was a guy with so many talents that the, tra Wilson, the tragedy of Wilson's life was that he couldn't figure out what to focus on. I actually thought that what was interesting about Wilson's life was that he, um, he's a, he was a guy who went through life making a mess, never cleaning up after himself, taking advantage of people until there was nobody left to take advantage of except his brother. And he took advantage of his brother. And then, <laughs> and then basically the show was over. So I, I thought it was a fascinating relationship and a very American story. Um, but, you know, I, I said earlier that um, I thought, you know, what, what collaborators need to do before anybody starts writing a musical is to talk and talk and talk until they're on exactly the same page. And Steve and I, who are great friends and obviously have enormous respect for each other, I'm not sure we actually talked the show down enough before we started to write it so yeah. that it needed to go through these various iterations until we wound up, you know, with John Doyle uh, at the public and could really finish the show by by um, throwing out what didn't belong there and emphasizing what did. And I should say, Oscar Eustace, uh, you know, who has a reputation as a brilliant dramaturg, um, was the really moving force at the public who said, you, you guys should finish this, come in and we'll talk about it. And Oscar was the first guy to really help us push us onto the same page and push us into the same place. And um, so I think eventually we actually got the show that we, that we wanted and I find enormously satisfying. I mean, there was a production at Encores 
last year with uh, Brandon Uranowitz and Raul Esparza. That was the two of them were amazing. Um, but it it took a long time because you know um, I don't think Steve and I were ever entirely in agreement on why we were writing what we were writing until we we'd been through a couple of productions that made it clear that we we weren't focused on that in the way that we needed to be. So how did you sort of originally approach the show and then how did that approach change over the other versions? Well, you know, I it it I told Steve obviously after I read the book, I said, I don't I don't see this my view of Wilson Myers is not the same as yours. Let's talk about it. but these characters are fascinating. Let's talk. And so we did talk, but I don't think we ever, you know, it's hard for me to, I can't put my finger on the moment that didn't happen, if you know what I mean. Yeah. It's like you put your finger on a moment when something does happen. It's harder to put your finger on the moment when something didn't happen in this case. And we just, we sort of started writing probably sooner than we should have. And since, you know, whatever Steve writes is really good. We, we started to accumulate material that felt like it was going to be a, a coherent show with, a, with muscle and a real purpose behind it. But I don't think either one of us could have told you what that purpose was. Yeah. And we sort of trusted that it would emerge as we worked, which can happen. But in this case, it, it had to go through a couple of productions before we got to that. And then, you know, the first meeting we have with John Doyle, um, after he'd read the script, he said, um, he said, I can't remember how he phrased it. He said, he basically asked what the show was about. And then based on what he read, he answered the question. He answered the question himself. And it was like, yeah, that's, 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 what, that's what we've been trying to write about. And we've been writing around it and kind of uh, next to it. Um, but we need to, we really need to center that idea. And, and almost, you know, it's not like we had to start over at all. It was a matter of tweaking and pruning and adding new stuff, but it was, yeah. but focus is essential. So how did you sort of in writing it deal with balancing the real story of the Meisners and also what you sort of need to make a musical? Well, I mean, in that case, um, uh, the, these, these guys had lived these extraordinarily flamboyant technicolor lives. It's as if they had, it's as if they, you know, were characters in a musical themselves. That's the way they conducted themselves and, and relished it, except when uh, obviously they were either causing a lot of pain or, or in a lot of pain themselves. Um, we, we, um, I'd have to I want to be careful with my answer, but I, I think we, we tried to really stick to the to the the basic facts of where they were, what they did, what they did to other people, what they did to each other. We changed uh, the, uh, the name of uh, of one of the important characters who appeared in the second act, um, and and massaged him into a kind of a different place. Uh, we, we did, you know, open up the idea of what happened when they wound up in Florida um, and how they went broke during the Florida land boom. But, um, you know, it, 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 these were historical figures, but with a very small age. It's not like writing a show about Abraham Lincoln. Yeah. He decided that instead of being born in Illinois, he was born in, in Hawaii. You know, it's like, well, no, I don't think that's going to, that won't work. So in that sense, it was different. And then the last question I want to ask you just to sort of skip to the present day is, are you working on anything right now over quarantine? I, I am. I'm, I'm working on a couple of shows, um, one of which you know, we, we, we've had a reading, uh, you know, uh, pre-pandemic. Um, and, you know, we're getting ready to go back to work on it. And there's another project I'm working on that I like a lot. Um, and I've got a deadline and it's... It's kind of this weekend, so I have to write, oh. I have to finish the last 10 pages. Uh, but I, I know, I think I know what I'm doing, but I'll know better on Monday morning. But yeah, it's, it's um, you know, we, we're, it's an odd time in which to be writing, because on the one hand, it feels like, what could be better? We're in the middle of a pandemic, there's, yeah. you're not supposed to go outside, so just sit down and get it done. Uh, on the other hand, um, 
the notion that the theater probably is not going to be back for another year um, creates an, a, an odd atmosphere around the idea of creation and maybe deadlines. It's, it's, it's a little peculiar. You don't need a pandemic to come up with an excuse for not meeting a deadline. <laughs> there, there, there are plenty you can come up with short of that. So, yeah, but I do. I, I actually, I like the things that I'm working on at the moment a lot. We'll see what happens. Thank you so much for talking to me today. And listeners, thank you for tuning in. And remember to come back next week when I am joined by the actor Walter Willison. Walter Willison was the star on Broadway of Two by Two, Norman Is That You with Maureen Stapleton and Lou Jacoby, Wild and Wonderful, Grand Hotel, and Pippin. He has also directed reunions of Grand Hotel, Annie, and Two by Two. He performed in tributes to Richard Rogers, among many others. He was also the original celebrant in Leonard Bernstein's Mass, as well as El Gallo in the Japanese tour of the Fantastics. He is also the author of Options and Broadway Scandals of 1928. And in addition to that, he appeared in Keene at the York Theatre and A Christmas Carol at Madison Square Garden. I hope you will enjoy that episode. Thank you for tuning in.